this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. It's early. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> that is the best way to blow the Monday morning cobwebs out of your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of Anderton's TV. And my guest today is Matt Schofield. How Welcome. You doing? Thank Welcome. you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so, we are going to talk about life, the universe, and everything, and your journey to uh, you know musical stardom. But. Yeah. Uh, what, what's happening right now? Are you sort of mid-tour? Mid- I am. I'm uh, on my way back to the US uh, tomorrow. So I came over um, about 10 days ago or something like that and uh, went straight to Switzerland, a couple of gigs there, Germany, a uh, little thing in Holland. And then uh, here we are now uh, about to dive I'm on my way to Heathrow. Dive basically. into Switzerland, yeah. see the bank manager, make sure all your hidden gold is okay. Yeah, I wish. Excellent. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the gig tonight here. So, uh, yes, of course. Hope you guys, uh, by the time you've seen this video, I hope you enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you growing up. You are a, a, a Brit that um, has been well received in America. Yeah, uh, yeah. But let's talk about back in the UK. Whereabouts did you, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Manchester, um, uh, but I only lived there till I was seven. Right. So then uh, we moved down to uh, the Cotswolds. I was going to say, you don't have a Manchester accent. You have a Cotswolds no, accent. I still have, uh, still have hard vowels. So I said bath and glass. I could never get glass right. Fair enough. And, um, and I mean, so I was there till I was 18, but I was also going to the US every year. My dad uh, has been in uh, Northern California since... 1988. So I would spend um, the summer in uh, in Northern California. So it was always lots of uh, trekking around with that kind of thing. So per- perfect uh, uh, 
um, warm up for being a touring musician. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. And was it was it a musical family? Can you can you um, recollect listening to you know? Well, it was all my dad's records actually. So he's a big blues fan, and um, yeah, I mean, so he was had much more traditional stuff than I even know about still. Really, a lot of the uh, great Delta um, acoustic stuff, and then all the way up to Muddy Waters, BB King, and Freddie King. So that was the stuff that I kind of grew up here in, and I suppose even in the car, there was the compromise was like Eric Clapton, you know, so uh, for the for everyone to listen to. So it was always always that kind of stuff. Um, so then once he was in the U.S., you know, I would um, I'd go out there and uh, tape his vinyls onto cassette uh, cassette tape and bring him back to England, and uh, eventually I sort of thought, well, this is. I want to do what they're doing, you know. So. Was he a guitar player? He had a guitar around. Yeah. He's got one lick that, he'll, <laughs> that I've ever heard him play. It's like a little, you know, uh, <laughs> like a little blues turnaround or something. And um, so, no, he didn't. Nobody really played music, but he. I will say he taught me to um, listen to music like a musician. Mm -hmm. So. You know, he'd put a BB King record on, and he'd be like, "Listen to how the drummer's following BB mm. here," or like, "Listen to the bass line," or you know. So he listened in, and I was able to sort of uh, explore. And then when I when I really got into it, it was because I had a BB King. He uh, left a VHS cassette of BB King. I think it's like '83. He's performing on the Tube. Um, or was it that was it the Tube? Something like that. British TV live from Newcastle Town Hall. Incredible gig. You can go on YouTube and look Amazing. at it now. You yeah. know because these days. But I had it on VHS. I was like, man, how can I do? I couldn't, you know, figure out what he's doing. It was really, really hard to tell. And because um, of course, I knew some of the, you know, cowboy chords and stuff. But then BB's up here going. <laughs> And that's like, where do you even start to... I, I didn't know about the pentatonic or anything like that. And um, so I got bass first, because I thought maybe I could play uh, bass in, in his band, but I still wanted to be BB. Um, so I kept going back to it. And then I saw a video of BB sitting in with uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Albert Collins. And uh, um, I was like, okay, I gotta do it now. And somehow Stevie Ray sort of made it seem um, more possible because BB's so majestic and it's so sophisticated in the music that you know um whereas Stevie's down there and he's playing in that uh you know the blues box position mm -hmm. it seemed like more obvious so um I'm surprised you uh you know I always found I always found uh BB King's at least superficially much more accessible than than Stevie yeah, stuff maybe it was the stuff that I had because it was mm. from the 80s and his playing's by that point is you know he's dropping like sort of Django-esque diminished lines and stuff on this but you know like really um, his Charlie Christian Django side wow. is coming out um, but yeah for whatever reason you know well, I think that's the thing with why Stevie Ray was such an influence for people of my generation playing guitar is he did sort of wrap it up into an accessible package that was at once both epic and mm. sort of doable hence the fact that there's been many many people who've sounded <laughs> a lot more like stevie ray vaughan ever since than than bb it's harder to be bb than it is stevie ray yeah. even though the technical requirement perhaps is mm. and, and that's been the the fascinating thing uh, 
over now the last 30 years. Uh, BB was the package though, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. he could sing. It was just like, you know, whereas I always thought, you know, St Stevie voice, Stevie got by as a singer, yeah. but was a un insane guitar. And BB was just like, you could just listen to him. You didn't have to be a guitar player to, to enjoy Of course, BB, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, yeah, that's, and that's sort of the same with, I'm a guitar player who sings, you know, um, but that's how I consider myself. And, uh, and I think that's, become the, the same for a lot but yeah those guys bb and uh albert king too they 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 were entertainers mm. they were um, yeah. artists the full pack big band yeah very very sophisticated bands you know um coming from really um the jazz side of things mm. as well that's the funny thing about bb is that you know the king of the blues is actually hugely influenced by jazz and that's he wanted to project that kind of uh sophistication so I've, i think the only interviews i've ever seen with bb he always underplays or downplays totally. any kind of technical understanding of what it do you think that was that a myth you think he was technically quite a cap not you know quite i've capable. seen uh, his um tuition video that mm. he did like and he's got a guy asking him questions about what he does but he knows where all the notes on the neck is it, it's yeah i think this it, it is certainly and i got to spend a little bit of time with him and he's incredibly was an incredibly humble guy so yeah i think he did downplay it a little bit but mm -hmm. i don't think it was fake um you know insincere kind of uh, humility i think he really felt like that but he did he knew exactly what he's doing <laughs> good for him yeah so so we're it you know roughly how old were you then when when uh sort of that sense of you know starting to play guitar but then going you know i might do this you know as a like properly well i was 12 just turned 13 in and um so it was summer of uh, it was august 1990 and i saw that video of stevie albert collins and bb and then actually stevie ray died like the week mm. later so um in my just turned 13 year old brain i'm like well i definitely have to do it now you know so i actually went back to school that september Came back. To, I was in the California, so came back to school September, and with some uh, friends of mine, I said, "Right, I'm starting a band. Uh, I'm the guitarist. Who's playing bass? Who's playing drums?" So we all we all started playing then and uh, did our first gig in April the following year. You know, and from that moment, we spent every minute after school and every minute on the weekends just jamming. And it always with a, a sort of a blues, you know, you didn't yeah. get sucked into the, I'm trying to think at the time, you know, Britpop and grunge would have been no. the two massive Yeah, it was like people at school know. listening to Nirvana yeah. and uh, Chili Peppers and then um, The Cure and stuff like yeah. that. Um, no, it was, um, you know, we were doing like some Hendrix, some Cream, some BB, some Howlin' Wolf, you know, it was like basically all, all of it Stevie. Um, yeah, so that was it. But and the the thing I've realised in hindsight is much of it was learned um, in the room with other human beings. So that's how most of my playing um, or most of my practice was done was always in the context of playing in a band. Mm. So we would spend every hour, and of course I'd go home and noodle around. But um, and that's in some ways continued to be the experience that I search out having to play solo like that right now and at 10 30 in the morning or whatever is like not what i do to me <laughs> what i do is what happens tonight when there's um a hammond organ and uh, a, a great drummer and and you know like yeah it, it's because i need that sort of feeding 
off the other musicians as well to, to hear something to play, yeah. you know. We, we had a, um, it was one of the things, we had Marcus Miller on a few months ago and he was saying that's, you know, modern technology has allowed him as a working musician to just be sent files, do sure. his piece, drop it in. Yeah. And it's like, it's a wonderful, convenient way of making a living and working. He said, but we're losing the, you know, you're losing that magic of what really makes musicians take it to the next level up is yeah. when they're all together in a room doing their thing. My newest record that I started last year is with Johnny and uh, Johnny Henderson and Evan Jenkins who were on my first record uh, 15 years ago and they're playing with me tonight um, and we went and found a studio last year with a big enough room that we could play all at the same time and that's because it's like you know why why are we trying to go around the houses mm -hmm. to recreate what we do in a studio when what we really do is all play together so yeah. So we, it was loud and uh, there's bleeding on all the tracks, you know, but it sounds like us. Yeah, didn't, uh, didn't stop me liking any of the old Beatles and Rolling Stones. Right, right. like, uh, yeah. so, so at what point in your, you, were you getting formal tuition, you know, at this point or is it no, largely no, self-taught? This is just, um, you know, listening to records. Wow. In fact, the only formal tuition I had was much earlier, was about eight or nine in primary school. Uh, you know, and I had so I had a nylon three-quarter size acoustic, yeah. and the guy would come in once a week, and we'd do like London's burning, London's burning. Yeah. You had the same years. guitar school that I had. That was the extent of my guitar lessons. Easy G, they called it, right? One finger on the amazing. And um, so that's why. So I did know the cowboy chords. Other than that, so um, yeah, I had. I think. My mum had a best of the 60s cassette tape and Voodoo Child was on it. And I sat there and I was like... Like that. And then uh, I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like other blues stuff as mm -hmm. well. So I played it in the wrong position for so I was an octave up, you know, my... Um, did had no idea it was tuned to E flat, so I'm probably playing... Not, you know, I'm still yeah. figuring out, but I went. That sounds like blues. Yeah. All of a sudden, that was my yeah. first ever lick. So, you know, you just start joining it up from there. And um, then I realized that oh, I that's the position to play it in most of the time. And, and um, off we go, you know. So, but again, always then taking that back to my friends who were playing bass and drums and figuring out songs and then playing um, where I grew up in Fairford in Gloucestershire there's an air base right. uh, it's a it's Royal Air Force base but they um, would uh, I think they maybe they still do it was occupied by the US mm -hmm. Air Force so in Fairford nobody knew about blues we were like the only band in 1991 and 2 in Fairford um, but so during the first Gulf War you know that the, they would be 52s were coming over so we used to get gigs on the airbase, playing in like the uh, the, 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 the big mess room, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, to the Americans who all loved blues and rock and roll, you know, and also as I recall, they weren't subject to British licensing hours back then, you know, which was eleven o'clock yeah. done. So 
you know, they would give us more money just to keep playing all night. So that was like our best gig. It happened to be right nearby where we grew up, but it was a whole room full of Americans who were like, it, more Stevie Ray! You must have had, because uh, I'm guessing you're still at school at this point, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're doing playing till one in the morning on a military yeah. base. Yeah. And then what, having to go to school the next morning? Yeah, I, yeah, basically, um, you know. I mean, we did, well, that, we weren't there every week or something, but we did it a fair few times. But, um, and, uh, but we were also doing gigs at school as well. So, I mean, and... So it must have been weird of, of us playing, you know, Howling Wolf or something to uh, a room full of 14-year-olds. But yeah. we did it. Then they all came out. It was like, um, and once you get the taste for that, you know. So, um, so it sort of, sort of went from there. Really. And that, that was the bug, was it? And that, did, you, did your mum and dad try and talk you out of it? Or? No, I must say they've both been uh, fabulously supportive the entire time. Um, so obviously my dad was into that music anyway, so it was kind of cool to him that I was playing it. And my mum, well, I'm sure she'd rather I've been a doctor or a lawyer or something. Um, it might have saved her a few, uh, <laughs> few pennies over the years on, in, on, the le- on the lean months, you know. Um, but um, but no, she was always like, you got to do what you love. So I, I never had anything but um, great support from from both of them. And uh, you know, and then you realise, well, you know, my fortunate part of my playing is the fact that I've managed to get away with only only doing that my whole life. And you know, it's been more difficult than others sometimes. Um, you know, I moved to London when I was nineteen and joined other blues bands with uh, uh you know and that's where i met evan my drummer this evening and uh you know playing in uh, in bands in london and johnny my organ player also grew up in fairford so he was in school he wasn't in the, that band back then mm-hmm. but he's a couple of years below me in school um so i've sort of been you know i think about this when i'm teaching or doing clinics it's like i've basically been able to fully engross myself in the journey of playing guitar and obviously if you have a family and a day job then you get maybe an hour to get your guitar out and and, and uh, practice so that's it's a different experience for me than it is for a lot of people and that's my i'm privileged to to be able to do that uh and but that comes with its own set of uh, harsh realities as well basically choosing to be an artist for for a living yes yeah. so. when so from a timing perspective you uh, I'm interested. So your your sort of professional career starts around about the turn of the century, I guess, around about 2000, is it? Uh, yeah, 1997. Okay. I moved to uh, London. I was 19. So it's kind of just before, you know, the digital music yeah. revolution. Yeah. You're also, I suppose, you know, one of a number of kind of like guys who were gonna get labelled as the next Stevie kind yeah, that of was, thing. Yeah, that was everybody was looking yeah. for that. Yeah, you know, and so what's that? I mean, they're two they're two kind of separate questions, I guess. So let's do the you know what what do you do when like everyone's looking for the next Stevie and all of a sudden because you're playing the blues, you are, you know. Is on it a like, strat, you please, know. like you know, how do you cope with that? Yeah, well, so well, first of all, I just. When I first went to London, I just joined other bands. I just wanted to be a professional musician and tour and get the chance to play. I wasn't worried about a solo career or, you know, putting myself out there. So, and, and that was, again, sort of part of the learning process of being, be, being able to become the kind of player that I wanted to be. So then when I did start my own band, I did an organ trio because mm-hmm. um, I, I naively at the time thought that being different was good. It's not really. People want something comfortable. 
So we did this organ trio, Johnny playing bass on the organ. It's quite jazzy. By that point, I should mention, some point later into my teens, having come from like B.B. and Albert King, Albert Collins, and, and, and then Hendrix and Stevie, I discovered jazz. I'd, heard, uh, I'd accidentally bought a Robin Ford record, I say accidentally, because I had no idea, and mm -hmm. I just thought, this looks cool. Like, used to go in and just browse through. I was, so that, I was like, holy crap, this is, what's, he, he's got a bunch of other stuff. I didn't know what's going on. Um, and um, turns out it was jazz. So, uh, which you really, you know, without the internet, like you say, back late 90s, it wasn't as easy to access stuff. And I didn't really know anyone who was into jazz. So um, he, you know, then I read a guitar player magazine interview and he says, oh, you've got to listen to Miles Davis, uh, Kind of Blue. Um, you've got to check that out. So I did, you know, so... Mm. So by that point, I've got that side of things in there and uh, also New Orleans music, like the meters, funky, really funky stuff. So I was, okay, let's do an organ trio that kind of puts a little bit, it's still going to be a blues band, but it'll be really swinging yeah. and funky and jazzy. Uh, so we'll try and put all those together. Um, and so we made this little live record just to get some more gigs, 2003. And all the British, you know, I remember Blues Matters magazine, the, the review was horrible. Oh. They were like, I don't know, this is just jazz. These guys are, and I'm like, <laughs> no, it's, if you listen to B.B. King or if you listen to um, Albert King with an organ trio, and it, and it just, but it wasn't that, this is a yeah. long way of explaining, it wasn't Stevie Ray. Uh, and that's where back then things were certainly in, on the UK scene, it was either... Stevie type Texas blues or you know harmonica players doing more mm. Chicago blues so we were a bit of an oddity and an organ trip people were like why don't you get a real bass player and it's I swear to god after gigs they were, where's the bass player and it's like well these bass is a, a register of music it's not just one instrument you know so it went it um yeah but I well I should say the guitar magazines though were very receptive you yes. know because they weren't as concerned about it being blues or jazz or whatever it was so uh, they're just looking for they're just looking for an excuse not to put Jimi Hendrix on the cover of the magazine again you know they yeah they just yeah. it's like I think in fairness to guitarist magazines they've always been like you know if there's somebody new and they're doing the yeah you know and they can play let's hear what they've got to say you so know? yeah not to sound entirely negative about my beginnings with the the lack of acceptance perhaps in the blues scene the guitar community yeah and still to some degree you know that's carried on throughout the world for me now. So, you know, there's some artists that um, that solidly work all the blues festivals in the world, and um, and I don't get necessarily that many calls from some of those. Uh, they, I don't know what they still think I am really, because I am in really blues, but I just just kind of do my own version yeah. of it, you know. But so when I go other places it's it's often a guitar crowd yeah. more you, than the blues crowd did you you know robin presumably yes yeah because yeah, yeah. he that's the couple of times we've had him on that's been his sort of career dilemma maybe for want of a better word is he sort of goes the the blues community think i'm too jazzy and the jazz community think i'm too bluesy yeah. and they end up with this like yeah and of course his uh, his influence is the one that set me on that path and i now find myself uh hard with the same brush <laughs> um but guitar players don't care about it they just want to hear some cool tone and uh, yeah. you know so um yeah and I, I will say you know now having spent my time driving around in a van in the u.s for nearly nine years um getting some miles 
under the belt. Um, I've started to reach into the blues community there, but um, you know, it's yeah, that's that's a different kind um, of different think, kind of scene, really. And I think you know, well done for you know doing your own thing because you, although at the beginning the Stevie thing was a, it didn't last very long with no. you, I think. You know, whereas other guitar players just can't shift it. It's yeah. just like that's yeah. it. It's just. Um, yeah. So I wanted to not, and then you know, because back then, of course, or different times for gear as well. Even two thousand and three, it was a, it was a different time than this. Um, so I I made my first two records, and I only had one guitar, right? One pedal and one amp, um, and I made my first two records with just that. And but then they were good. It was yeah. my original sixty one Strat and my sixty four Super Reverb and a Menatone Red Snapper, but. Um, that was a different thing than, you know, so to, to just, um, it was much simpler, you know, to not be uh, caught up in the gear thing. But as we were talking earlier, you know, now that's become like a, a way out for artists such as myself as well into the world. Here we are now at a guitar shop talking about stuff. So, um, so that's, uh, that's become a new avenue. Again, really not related to the blues at all. It just so happens that the blues yeah. is full of guitar playing. So. Well, let's, we'll definitely, definitely come back to that. I, I, I thought it was fascinating, again, we, before the cameras were rolling. Your, your career started really just at the turning point where uh, people were consuming music at, at first, you know, illegally, you know, just the pirate thing yeah. was the, the challenge. Yeah. But now, you know, entirely legally, albeit still commercially not a great deal for the artist. <laughs> no, nothing at so, all for so people, yeah. Where, how do you, tell, well, let, you know, tell, tell us, you know, said that that first album is still probably, the, in the old-fashioned way, was still the most... Yeah, when my first album came out, yeah, people were still buying CDs. So even though not many people knew about me, I probably sold more copies of that because more people actually bought physical stuff. And as, yeah. so as, as I got more well-known, the sales of things go down, you know, so it's been yeah. like this. Um, so you have to find other ways. So in the old days, it was like you would tour, get a fan base, and then if you were good in a record label like you, you'd make a record. And, so, and then you made money from the record and you toured to promote your, your record. So then it became you have to make a record to get gigs now because everybody's got a record. Yeah. So it, that, first of all, was the first thing to flip. Everybody's got uh, an album because it's easy. And first, that was the first stage, actually. As if, um, in the 90s, everybody could start going to a studio, pressing a CD independently. Now we want to hear your record to give you a gig. Um, so then as that moved on, um, then everybody stopped buying physical media, pretty much. So then you're driving around in a van to try and make money, but overheads on touring, mm. you know, and it does affect things creatively because um, I didn't necessarily want to just have a trio for the rest of my life. I always wanted to ultimately have, be like BB King in front of my big band so I can just come out and go, you know, that's, but that's a lot of mouths to feed, yeah. you know, and What's so. The, what do you think the overhead per night on you know, you've got to be doing five to ten thousand pound a night just on an overhead. I mean, easily, just to sort of easily. So, and, and I mean, and at the same time, the cost of living has gone up yeah. all over the world while while I've been doing this. So, try getting a hotel room in New York City that you would be happy to sleep in um, for less than three, four hundred dollars a night. Do you know what I mean? And so, that's just one person. So, you add that up. Yeah. This is this is, and then you do the maths about 
um, ticket prices and, and yeah. flights flying about and gear, you've got to rent some gear. So again, things like working with great companies, I flew to uh, Finland last year and uh, Harry here, my friend from Mad Professor, sets me up with a full backline, you know, nice Mad Professor amp and um, because otherwise, unlike having to rent stuff and, you know, so all those tie-ins, you have to pull it all together like that these so days. So how do you, you know, without wanting to put all you guys off of ever by trying to forge a career as a professional musician, you can't make any money out of selling the, the, the albums. Uh, touring's too expensive to make any money, at least at kind of, you know, if you're playing to you know, two or 300 people sure. or whatever. Yeah. Um, but well, you're still here, and it doesn't. It looks like you've eat, You know, you're still eating. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, I am living in the U.S. now, and it definitely starts adding up those big, big portions. So, so what do you do? How do you? Um, you know, how yeah, do you make well, it lately, work? Lately, um, you know, one of the biggest things for me has been uh, working with Truefire, the, yeah. the uh, online lessons. I've done two courses for them in the in the last year, and you know, that's um, really great uh, intellectual uh, property that I can still get paid for. Mm -hmm. You know. So that's been wonderful, They've, and everything's great about the whole thing. Everybody's great at what they do, great company to work with, and the response has been great to the lessons. But um, it's like, so that's actually a payoff. It's not the one I expected, but the driving around in the van all these years thing, um, the payoff has been that now I can explain my playing. I wouldn't have been able to do it the same 10 or 15 mm. years ago and just do lessons. But what I can feel like I can offer on the True Fight thing now is is a is a certain perspective and a certain style of teaching. So that's been a game changer for a lot of us, mm -hmm. and that's why Robin has courses on there, and Larry Carlton and David Grissom, they've all they mm -hmm. all do courses for uh, for True Fire because honestly, it means that we don't have to be in a van as much. Is there <laughs> uh, presumably though? There's no shortcut, and if anything, now you know unless you're. I don't know, incredibly lucky to hit a vein of something really takes off you, big poppy song or something like that. Yeah. You've just got to put the miles in and accept that for 10 years of your life, whilst you hone your craft and build a fan base, it's just going to be a little bit hand to mouth. Yeah, know? it is. And it still, it really, it still is hand to mouth. Not as hard as it used to be, but it still is. There's mm. very little, you know, job security here. And, and um, you know, I go home and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough um, to finally be a homeowner. I got a little little condo in, in Jupiter, Florida in, in the US, beautiful, thanks to my manager who uh, is good at that kind of stuff because, you know, that's a whole, you know, property. I got no idea, you know. But I had an opportunity very affordably to have a very nice place to live. And um, But I go home and I still just do little local gigs for, for um, not advertised, not, you know, and I'm just playing a bit of guitar with some friends, but it's, it's still a bit of money when you're not touring mm. and uh, keeps the fingers going. You know, so um, it's not like we go out on tour, earn a million mm. uh, dollars, and then go and sit in our um, penthouse or something. It's it's yeah, it still is. Everybody's having to work. You know, you you have played and you are still regularly asked to play. Um, as part of these kind of epic guitar lineups. <laughs> yeah. um, tell us about, you know, which of those have blown your mind the most? And... Uh, yeah, I mean, um, well, one, one time I did the, a few years ago, did the, um, what's it, uh, Guitar Town Festival in Colorado. And for the final jam, let me try and picture the stage. It went John Jorgensen, Sonny Landreth, 
Robin Ford, Steve Vai, <laughs> <laughs> me, um, and a couple of other fellows whose names I've forgotten that I wasn't that familiar with there. Steve's like, the fish out of water there, isn't he? You know, he doesn't but, play a lot of blues, does he? But it so. was it was super, and we did like a clinic as well. Yeah. All of us sat in a row, you know. Um, and sometimes you just like, how did I end up here? You know, this is. Um, so that was that was an odd one, and uh, you know I've got I've got my two rock rig at that time it was fifty watt and four ten you know wheel it out on the flight case for the final jam, but I find myself right next to Steve and he's got that massive stereo carving thing yeah. two four twelves there yeah. and then his floor wedges are actually guitar cabs as well so he's got like quadraphonic <laughs> that's what's going on so he stands in the middle because he's got two two twelves firing back at him and two four and I'm like. All right, I guess I'm just going to, hopefully I can hear th something through this, you know, with his band doing the, what did we do? Like, I don't know, Red I bet it was Jimmy Hendrix. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe Little Wing even, something. But yeah, that's great. And then other ones are different than that. Like a lot of times I'll play, went to Japan, for example, with uh, Josh Smith and Kirk Fletcher. Yeah. And we always, we always have a good time. What a trio of talent there. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's really fun. And, you know, we're... Um, we're all kind of cut from the same cloth, really, and, and grew up on the same stuff and have a lot of similar frames of reference. And everybody's gone their own little way of interpreting it. But um, it's really fun to, uh, to do that. So that's more like a, more like a hang than, a, than a finding yourself was, up was with there Steve a, Was there a... Do you still get butterflies and stuff like that? Or is, was, no, is that I your, never did. Even never my first did. ever gig, the desire to play... In fact, I'm, I'm most nervous when you say to me play something by yourself now that's like the worst thing but if i actually go out and do what i do yeah um i've never never been nervous on a gig and um certainly i remember the first time i went to the nam show probably 10 years ago or something i'm walking around and i'm like man there's so many good players you know what and then it, so at first that's sort of intimidating but then I, i'm like but I can I can only play how I play. Mm -hmm. Like that's the only thing I can do. I'm not versatile. I'm not a good session guitarist. That's another story. Okay. I mean, I abandoned that when I came to London um, because I couldn't play what somebody wanted me to play at that. I can only play what I think of in my mind, and then it comes out at any time. You know, I, I I'm, can't even play my own solos again, really. <laughs> and so it's a strength and a weakness. You know, it's like. But um, so I was a rubbish session guitarist, but. Then I realised, listening to all these guys, that um, well, I I can only be the the best Matt Schofield, yeah, and um, and nobody can do that either, other than me. So then then um, once you stop worrying about impressing people and you play the music for the sake of the music, and just because it you want to make it sound good, then all that disappears and you don't, I don't it's not even a concern anymore because I realised after twenty nine years of playing. My playing is a product of me making it how I want it to sound. And it's not like, oh, if I could change what I do to be more like someone else, mm -hmm. I'd make, do you know what I mean? It's like, no, this is, this is the process that I've, mm -hmm. this is where I've arrived with do it, so. I can understand you, I can definitely understand getting to that sort of point of maturity where you just go, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like that person or that person. Yeah. And I think pretty much every guitarist I've ever interviewed very you know doesn't very quickly sort of just goes look i am what i am i don't sure. but in terms of a genre do you still you know do you still find genres that you're not 
uh, familiar with exciting? You know, are you still do you still maybe look at I don't know. I'm thinking of whether or not you go a bit more hardcore kind of country or a bit more jazz. You know, do you sort of think? Oh yeah, do you know? What? I'd love to do an album of yeah, X. I d- not so much for me. I mean, it just like I say, is what comes out is what comes out mm-hmm. with me. And uh, in that respect, I am a blues guy in my mind, in the same way as the the old guys were. It's like what I'm more interested in, like almost like refining the artist mm-hmm. that I am. Like BB was just always BB King, you know. Now you can I like playing with different lineups and different settings of the band and stuff, but um no, I'm not really interested in getting my country licks together or it, and that's that's just not the the kind of art that I pursue with the guitar. I just pursue being me more and more. And that's really the thing goes back to that video of BB Stevie and Albert Collins is they are all stood there together playing a slow blues, well, Texas Flood, and uh, they all sound completely different, Mm. but they're all playing the blues. But you couldn't find three more different sounds. And that was the thing right from the start for me. I was like, so if I found myself up there with them, it's no good sounding just like one of them. You know, I have to put it all together and then have something to say myself. So that's really been the process is like finding something to say uh, yeah. with the instrument so no you're not going to get a country record for me because uh, <laughs> i don't feel like that's what i have to say then that's that's why it's but, fine but i do in- see i wasn't angling for no you no no but it's a good it's a good point though but i uh, i do enjoy listening to lots of other kinds yeah. of music in fact you know i listen to a lot of jazz a lot of funk i listen to a lot of stuff that doesn't have guitar on it i you know like my favorite guitar players are my favorite guitar players but I listen to lots of Stevie Wonder and Donny Hathaway, which is not really guitar-centric in any way, um, because I like music, really, more than anything, uh, you know, and I love the blues the most, but what I really love is music, so... Well, that's cool. Well, look, we touched a little bit on gear, and as we are a music store, yes. and this is predominantly a gear channel, we should probably take that trip down memory lane and bring bring up to date. So you you talked about this your first album being a sixty one strat super reverb and mm. one pedal. Yes, I I love it. You yes, know, there's there's a there's a but but I'm never going to retire off of customers like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, obviously, I, let's talk about the, the 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 gear journey and kind of what you, you, have you you've been a strat guy? Well, forever? actually. I think I, uh, I think I went off my own point earlier when I was explaining <laughs> that because when I had when I mentioned the sixty one Strat and the Super Reverb, um, I did have then a brief journey with to to try and avoid the Stevie Ray thing even more. Right. Because so I'm twenty five years old. I got a Sunburst Strat that's starting to get beaten up and a Super Reverb and basically yeah. like a cheap cowboy boot. boots. Or you, yeah, yeah, I, st- I still love my cowboy <laughs> boots. Uh, um, but um, and uh, man, the strap I had it's in my guitar case, but. You know, I, I love all that stuff still, but um, I think you can absorb it and still be yourself, um, like Stevie did with Hendrix, you know? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, my strap was a gift from the guy that made Stevie's last strap that I'm using uh, at the moment, and it was a, that's such an amazing gift I got it at the Dallas Guitar Show. Anyway, I was... Um, so I thought, oh, I'll try, try and avoid that, so I played my... Uh, it's a Tokai 335, actually. Okay. It was a non-export... Uh, Japanese one. Um, it's great, great guitar. Mm. But that's at my mum's house in Manchester now. I haven't seen it in quite a while. Uh, 
and uh, Simon Law, who now is responsible for these guitars for me, had a 68 telly that was just great. Um, but then that was a blonde telly with a rosewood neck, and I'm like, well, I can play that, and everybody's going to say you sound like Robert Ford. <laughs> because I, those are both influences of mine, and they're, I, in some ways, that was to me would be like the ultimate guitar player if you put Stevie and Robin together. So this is all, and I'm 25 years old, yeah. so you're still sort of processing all of that. So in the end, it was good playing the other guitars and to come back to the Strat and definitely not sound like Stevie Ray on a Strat. Yeah. So I was quite pleased I could do that. Um, so everything since is in some ways still been sort of based on that same rig, you know, and I've got a couple more things these days, but it's the, it's the same principle. As... Yeah. Let's, uh, we'll get to the pedals in a minute. Because yeah. the, the pedals, I think, you know, will be an accessible thing for, for everybody watching this. But we'll talk about the amp for a minute. You, you've got this Super Reverb, loud, traditional, in-your-face Fender sound. Yeah. And, of course, you you know, long-time uh, relationship with the guys at Two Rock. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, I love how guitar players answer the question of... So let's talk about this idea that you've basically just got to be good to get those guitar amps to sound good. Well, yeah. You know, and yet, and amps that, for us mere mortals, that will sound a bit more forgiving, just aren't your, they don't give you what you want. So can, can you yeah, explain that? Well, it's a lot of it's to do with headroom, really, you know, and um, so I want to be able to determine where the amp, uh, where the limits of the, the sound and playing are. So with a smaller, low wattage amp, that very quickly puts a ceiling on your dynamic range, you know? But playing for me is all about getting as much dynamics out of That's the, the details mm -hmm. that maybe you don't really notice when you listen to a really good blues player, but that's the what that's what's going on with the ones that sound really mm. good, is like just little being able to go. You know, like some notes stronger mm. than others, some notes softer and, and so you really need some headroom to reproduce that because if the power section of an, of an amplifier is compressing it just flattens all that out so the feeling for me of running out of headroom on a gig is a disaster mm. um, so then you have to basically learn to manage a powerful amplifier and it's it's like they say with great power comes great responsibility and um, I like your car analogy the analogy you know, yeah. yeah it's so yeah. it's if you get if you're not an experienced driver and you're getting a very, very powerful, you know, this thing's with a thousand horsepower these days, and you would just put your foot flat on the floor, you're just going to slam into the first wall mm. that comes past. You'll be going too, you can't control it, you know? Uh, so it is, it's like having a very powerful car. You have to drive it carefully, otherwise you'll crash. Yeah. And it's, headroom is it's that. It's like, I like a V8 engine, basically. So I like 50, 100. <laughs> And in the case of uh, the latest Two Rock uh, that, that I uh, got is 150 watts. It's not about volume, though. I mean, I am. Yes. I'm loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm loud, but it's it's not like mashing on the. You can make anything sound bad if you just like. You know, it's finessing it. You know, and like pulling the the tones out of the guitar with how you play it. And, uh, you know, most of the time I'm not on, not on ten. Okay. Most of the time, uh, even in a solo, I might have 
the drive on, but the guitar's on seven maybe to start out. Mm. And then as it builds and, you know, the band plays with a lot of dynamics as well. That's very important. We're not, so it's not like a big amp flat out all night and the band mashing on it. We go up and down. It's very, yeah. so that's why it's like using a powerful car to get through the turns and stuff, but you have to finesse it. I, I so, think as a, as like the sort of, as far as the sort of general public guitar player is concerned, that that we tend to go in waves of like, what what what, what is it that's cool? And I, I think for the last probably 20 years or whatever, it's been this like low valve, low, low wattage valve amplifier that, you know, push the power section, that's how you get the good tones. Yeah. And in the last year or two, it just feels to me like people, people are beginning to look at the 100 watt amplifier again, not as, oh, it's unbelievably loud and that sort of, more as just something, as you say, it's just got this huge dynamic range. Yeah, and, yeah. And if you want to have everything from a whisper to a scream, that's, just what you need and, and it's not and, about volume as such yeah know. and i sort of need to know the size mm. of that dynamic range mm. you know and uh yeah it isn't it, it's it's still loud but mm. there's a way to make it so and then it's also dialing your stuff in mm. properly it, you know having a good guitar helps a lot so that it's nice and resonant and you know there's yeah there's, you got to get, get a lot of harmonics uh, into the sound um so the amp has to be rich sounding if it's loud it's mm. loud and harsh is not good right so that's but loud and warm and fat that's a, that's how most of the great guitar tones that we listen to from the past were really loud you know hendrix with three full marshall super lead stacks I yeah mean, that's loud that's pretty loud um let's just We'll talk about the pedals in a minute, but let's just give a shout out. We should really thank uh, the guys at Reunion Blues and Kurt Mangan for kind of organizing today. Yeah. Um, Reunion Blues make beautiful gig bags. Uh, and I guess I'm not going to try and do a hard sell on a gig bag here. It's like, I'm guessing it doesn't really <laughs> affect how you sound at night. No, but um, it does affect, I will tell you, this is a true story and this is the best, um, you know, I carry my guitar on in the US and the the law there says that you can mm -hmm. but you know it's always a fight to get it on a plane yeah and uh, and there's been times where they just simply won't say what well, you can't do it or yeah. it's full you're too late getting on and you have to gate check it and of course they're supposed to give it back to you when you get off the plane with like the yes. prams and stuff you know um, and often they don't and it goes down to the carousel um, that's happened before and I, I can honestly say that's the only gig bag that I would not yeah. be completely panicking yeah. out of my mind. It'll survive a baggage handler, maybe, maybe yeah. not being driven over by a uh, low by one of the carts, but it will survive yeah. whatever you can throw it. Let's put it that way, and that's absolutely true. I've had that happen. Well, and we're all myself and Pete. We're all fans of of those bags. I guess the strings probably have a, a, a slightly more tangible uh, effect on tone. <laughs> absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, where, what was the attraction with going over to, to the Kurt Mangan strings? Um, I've been with him like I think at least ten years now, so we no, nobody heard about him. And, wow! Um, yeah. For me, I was searching around, uh, been buying like hodgepodge sets to get the gauges I wanted. Yeah. So I was often buying a regular eleven set and throwing away the low E, and um, so you know I wanted to uh, lessen my. Um, carbon footprint or whatever you know like it was very wasteful no no i just wanted to be able to get set 
so I remember finding Kurt's website. I thought, well, I'll give him a try because he, you could order any set mm. that you wanted with whatever gauges, right. you know. So I like a 54 on the bottom to um, be able to do that or just... Nice. You in concert pitch? You in E or yeah. E flat? E. e yeah, so you're playing some, yeah, you know, yeah, of a man strings here. It's a, then. it's a regular eleven set, but um, with a fifty-four on the bottom. So it's, yeah, it's you know, mm. so sometimes I, now that I'm into my forties, I occasionally think about maybe I'm going to try one of those <laughs> ten and a half sets on some nights. But the problem is, and right now sat here, I have to work a bit more but as soon as the adrenaline's in on a gig yeah. I don't think about it and then, then I'd be off the side yeah. of the fretboard if I if I had anything lighter um, but basically I discovered because I could order a set of mm -hmm. whatever gauges I wanted and then I was like these are really great strings um, so I just kept doing that and at some point I started talking to Kurt and then uh, actually my first ever visit to the NAMM show was, was with him and so we talked about actually releasing the mm. signature set for people that might want to do that, and uh, here we are now. And the other thing I could say, up until July, I could say I'd never broke, I'd never broken a string on a gig since I've been using them. Wow. Um, but I did have my first breakage. Just so you know, this endorsement is on. <laughs> I did break one in July in Italy, but it was the third gig on that set, and I'm two at the most, usually most, mm. most gigs I change them. But we'd had a terrible travel day, and. And then they'd lost this guitar for 24 hours, and then I got it back, and then, you know, so I had to, we got out and basically had to get out of the van and play, and um, didn't get a chance to change them. So it, I, can, I can get at least two gigs. The third gig, I did break the high E, but that's one in like 11 years. It's pretty, it's pretty good. good, right? I've, I've got to say, you know, strings is something that I'm a little bit uh, cynical about, but... I played Dan Steinhardt's telly about a year ago and uh, I did say to him, I said, what strings are these, yeah. Dan? You know, it's like, they actually feel pretty good and different. And, and anyway, they were, I, I don't know what gauge they were, but they were Kurt Mangan strings and they definitely, they've got a thing, you know, so. Yeah, it's, anyway. not, it's not like reinventing the wheel, no. but they, they're just nice yep. and well-made and yep. consistent. And so, you know, what's not to like? Well, let's talk about then the Mad Professor thing because, of course, Mad Professor is an, is another uh, brand that, where you've got a signature product. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've got uh, a very simple board on the floor here, um, yeah. which hopefully you guys are seeing at the moment. Um, tuner, delay, funny little red thing that you can explain, yeah. and of course your Supreme. Yes. Um, and then we've got an extra special Mad Professor treat for you with a world exclusive. Um, which we'll come to in a minute. Yeah. So tell us about your... This, is this an actual touring board for you? Yeah, this is my this board. Is this the is board. my touring board. And for actually, I only put this together like last month. I didn't even have a board for the last year. I had just the Supreme on the floor or Supreme in a tuner and I had the delay back on top of the amp. Yeah. Um, because I, you know... Um, well, Dan, uh, a couple of years ago, made me a big, beautiful board with the yeah. gig rig uh, quartermaster yeah. and it was wonderful but the, it, he sort of put himself out of a job with me because <laughs> then all of a sudden I heard like basically when you everything's out of the circuit and I was like that sounds so much better doesn't it like we used to be plugged into the amp yeah. so um, so I kind of went oh like I've come full circle and I want to get rid of it all and just get it down to the very minimum and then I started talking to uh, 
my friend Harry over there at uh, Mad Professor because I was like, if I could get everything into one pedal, the two sort of amounts of drive I need, then I would be down to one pedal. Um, so, um, do you, do you, is, the, is a part of this pedal also that if you're doing fly gigs and festivals and stuff, that the backline rental could be anything? Or, or yeah, I mean, luckily I don't have to deal with that too much these days because um, you know, Two Rock and their distributors often take care of me wherever I am. So I don't. But I did use end up using some backline just mm-hmm. the other week, and um, um, yeah, there's a little bit of that. Although I did for a while, I did try a different solution to that with like the Kingsley uh, Maiden preamp. Mm. So I mm. use this into the Maiden, and then into out of like a stereo reverb into the effects returns of a pair of Devilles or yep. something. Yeah, and that was so you're taking the preamp out of it, and the Maiden that I had is like a full blackface. Mm-hmm. Preamp that was good, but um, yeah, carrying around the least amount of stuff possible is definitely part of it. But also just not having like loads of stuff to to think about. I, I just want to play guitar, and I don't want to be tap, tap dancing. I don't want to be troubleshooting like, oh god, what's gone wrong now? Yeah. What's buzzing? What's humming? You know. So uh, yeah, well, let's talk us through this. My my favorite thing about mm. this board, yeah, is. Um, so you guys will probably be looking at this going, that's a bit weird. Why do you plug into the delay before you plug into the distortion pedal? And of course, you're not doing that. Underneath the board, you're going tuner, um, tuner, pedal. supreme, delay, tremolo, tremolo. out. So. But because it, you were saying, because just this is all about keeping things simple, you just want the pedal board just slightly off to the right of your mic stand, and so you just want to be able to plug, stomp yeah. on. So that goes on, that stays on all time. <laughs> So, you know, I could basically, and this is a tremolo, which is, I have one tremolo sound. So that's Henretta Engineering made that. Uh, it's got trim pots. So it's just preset, one tremolo sound. I could even have uh, the same thing with the delay, really. I, that never gets turned on and off. So th- I just put them out of the way because that I do press several times in, in uh, every song. So, yeah, it's just, and I'm not looking. I got my eyes shut. It's sweaty the lights are bright i can just like know that that's yeah. there without and even thinking about so it so the, the two buttons are what two sides of a of a gain yeah pedal? so we've got on and off right uh, so there's our straight uh our little straight amp sound and then uh that's turns it on and we're on the a side on the left side which mm-hmm. is uh, like the um I was using the Mad Professor Royal Blue overdrive yes. for uh, for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a great dynamic drive. So that goes from the straight amp to uh, so a little little hair, little thickness. great man that's all the way up so it's really dynamic you can play like on six or seven and get like a get a cleaner different clean sound Mm. it's about the same amount of gain but it's it's just a so there's loads of flavors Mm. in there so you 
and this is the whole thing with the rig to me. So we've got that high headroom amp. I'm using the volume control all the time and mm. trying to, you know, I adjust it constantly on a gig to make that note a bit fatter than the other ones or make this one sing a bit more. It's like trying to really play the equipment that you're using. And then this side, well, um, I had the man Professor Twimble, mm -hmm. which is sort of their take on the, on the overdrive channel yeah. of, a, of a Dumble amplifier. But uh, it has a wonderful texture to the overdrive, like really amp-like and, and dynamic. But for me, it was a bit too compressed. The head, yeah. Again, not enough headroom. So I would lay, I would flick from the royal blue to the um, to the symbol, twimble. Twimble symbol. Yeah, either one. And uh, <laughs> and it would, you'd, I'd get the gain boost and the EQ that I wanted, but it would make it smaller compared right. to the rest of my rig. Yeah. So I said, got talking with Harry, and I'm like, right, could we do something with the Royal Blue that I can hit one? Because you could, this isn't stacking. Right. This is switching from side to side. I see. You can stack yeah. it. The little switch in the middle goes, lets you stack them. But I wanted something one press, and it will go to the, the next level of game. Yeah. So then uh, the, the Mad Professor fellas went back and uh, got to work with uh, the team and came up with the... A, a high headroom version of uh, of the that kind of tone, but in the end, it's almost uh, goes back a little bit into like a cranked super lead yeah. sort of sound than than just the dumbly sound. It's uh, but it it's that sort of tailored to the bridge pickup. Right. So this one I can use with either the neck or the bridge. <laughs> And you know, tone control down a bit on the bridge pick. Bit more Albert Collins, and then this one brings like the low mids back in, and you get. So, uh, and that's got a fair amount of fair amount of drive on it but not it's not compressed so the, it's still it's great so i really want to sound like it's that getting that thing when you've stood next to a really great tenor saxophone player and okay. i mean a really great one the first time this happened to me was we my trio same band as tonight we were back backing up uh Pee Wee ellis that played with james brown yeah know? yeah so we did a set and i've got 100 watt two rock head and four ten this is like 2007 so i'm thinking my tone is really big fat and then peewee comes out on the second set and he's like two feet off the microphone with the tenor sax and he just hits this note and it, the whole thing resonates and you can hear it through a hammond organ and it makes my guitar sound sound like this and i'm like that's a real resonant acoustic instrument yeah and the dynamic range that he has because he can play it as well yeah. i was like so i've always been trying to work more towards that and so that the notes keep yeah. blooming rather than squished out so uh, th this one's got <laughs> and a little bit of tone off on the <laughs> do you know do you know a guy called Chris Buck uh, yes, I know of, of him. I've met, met once. Yeah, I, I mean he's a younger guy, but he's definitely been influenced by you. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, can... I would agree with that. He, yeah, <laughs> there's it's... a few of them around these yeah. days. I've um, 
I've found it's a it's a strange thing, really. You know, like because like you go from the up and coming mm. young blues guy, and then somehow you if you stick at it long enough and stick around and pursue a sound of your own, yeah, then you sort of somehow now I'm like a veteran, forty two, and I'm. Uh, but I didn't have the glory years in the middle <laughs> of the 10, 10 million records, you know. So I've passed as passed from up and coming to in in the lexicon of the sounds that you hear other people using, yeah. you know. And uh, I'd still just still driving around in a van. I think j- just the fact that you have a recognisable sound is very very few guitar players get to that level where you can go. That's the one, though, you man, know. for me. That is the thing. Like mm. I said, with that video of Steve, it was like, um, you know. And I like paying, like, I like the nods to my influences still. Mm. And I think that's why Stevie Ray was great, is because he sounded like 100% like Stevie Ray. Um, but he was, you could tell it was some Jimmy, some Albert King, Lonnie Mack. Nobody ever mentions Lonnie Mack. For sure. But that was Stevie's, the third part of Stevie was Lonnie Mack. Um but it's like now, so I've been playing 30 years next year, and it's now I spend more time thinking about what kind of player I want to be for the next 30 years if I'm lucky enough to be on the planet. And uh, then the next step, the end-level boss, as I call Whoa. it, is like John Schofield or Robin, okay, uh, Mike Landau, where when John Schofield plays you don't hear any influences left it's every single note is 100% John Schofield you know he and Robin too really um um he even argued with me about this one night <laughs> when we were having some drinks because he said Eric Johnson is just Eric Johnson and I said well no I think you're more just Robin Ford than Eric Johnson is just Eric Johnson because Eric you can tell he does like a bit of Jimmy still, a yeah. bit of Jeff Beck. The reference is there, but Robin, it's just Robin yeah. when he plays. And uh, he disagreed, but I still maintain that he, he's got that thing where you're not like, oh, it's Robin doing a bit of BB or it's yeah. Robin doing a bit of Albert Collins or something. I think so. younger, younger listeners will hear Eric Johnson and say he sounds like lots of other guitar players, except, of course, the they truth all is sound, they all sound like him. Yeah, but I can <laughs> still pick out when Eric Johnson's doing his, like, Cream Clapton vibe. Yeah, yeah. Even his rig, really, is, like, built off the way... He just took, like, three of his influences and used their, each one mm. of their rigs as, like, an entire... You know, he does his check and stuff. Of course, it all sounds like Eric Johnson as well. Yeah. But it's easier to spot the... the um, the roots of each bit of the style yeah. whereas yeah Robin just only sounds like Robin John Schofield and Mike Lando interestingly for such a versatile session guy who can play on anything yep. when he does his own stuff it just sounds like Mike Lando you know he still has some Jimmy in there doesn't he sometimes you know but these these days like less and less so um, so that's end level boss really is where you you don't have any remnants of your of your heroes you you are yeah. one yourself and that's going to become more and more impossible just the longer the electric guitars on the planet isn't it well it is How the, are you, yeah. and the electric blues now are the branches of our trees yeah. so yeah. big that you you're you're fighting a um for a space in it yeah yeah Let, let's have a little yeah. uh, st- i know this is a little bit unfair on you because this is the first time you've uh, even tried this super black i think oh isn't yeah it? But, so harry but let, let's plug this in we've got a we've got a new pedal from uh uh, from Mad Professor that is 
very sort of fendery with nods towards old blackface amplifiers. Yeah. But if I'm honest with you, I don't know what it does. Let's just stop <laughs> on it and see what it sounds like. It's uh... right. Definitely uh, has the steelier Fender uh, scoop in there as well. Probably the kind of thing that I would uh, use for, like we were talking about flying in and ending up with a couple of backline amps. Yeah. Um, that, um, I mean, certainly like your average DeVille and stuff, it, it, they don't sound like old Fender amps, in, just even in the way they're EQ'd. They're, yeah. It's that flatter sort of sound. Softer. More forgiving, yeah. basically, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. So this is that steely thing, but you can... I think there's a drive in there. Honestly, I've not even got... I've got no idea. That, well, that sounds great. It's got that thing. There we go. And I should mention the trim as well, shouldn't yes. I? Because that's super cool. And actually, Kevin Henretta, who makes these, he just he did actually make one with two knobs on that arrived just before I left, so I haven't had a chance to put it on there because I thought, well, maybe I'd use some different trim sounds. But the cool thing is it's like the bias tremolo. It's not like a hard, choppy one, so it's really got a nice, soft sort. Simple as that, really. That's all there is to it. <laughs> and of course, as long as you buy, you know, basically the Reunion Blues gig bag, the Kurt Mangan strings and one of these pedals, you too will sound exactly the same as Matt. Just Schofield. that simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, it's been amazing having you on. Um, Thank you for having me. I must recommend everybody. I'll put links in the description below. But yes, if you want to find out about one of Matt's True Fire guitar courses, go mm. check that out. If you want to see him in concert again, go to his website, find out where he's playing. Of course, big back catalogue of music now that people can go and... Anything yeah. new coming? Yeah, this record that I started last year, you know, I've been procrastinating a little bit and and um, some of it's my fault, some of it's intentional, uh, some of it's the industry's fault, lots of reasons that it's not out yet, but uh, <laughs> I'm almost there. I think I got a, I, uh, I made the terrible mistake of thinking that I could do the session and then go on tour and be away for ages and come back to it three months later when I was home and go in and sing it, you know, because we did all the playing, but... And the further away you get from it, the harder it is to go back to it. So that's one of my... So when do you think roughly that'll be? Next year. Okay. Uh, Earlier next year. Hopefully I'm, Early home, I'm home again next month. So I'm planning to get it, getting a, sticking a fork in it and saying done, you know. So. Well, I'm super looking forward to seeing you tonight. Thanks, mate. Thank, Thank you very much for coming man. in. Thank you guys for watching. As always, please like and subscribe. 
and we shall see you in a video probably tomorrow. Bye. Cheers. listening to our latest podcast if you enjoyed it hit that subscribe button see you next time